The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today, I think for the first time in the history of Americano, by a guest in Moscow. I'm joined by Anatoly Karlin, who is the author of the powerful Takes Substack and can also be found on Twitter at akarlin.com. A-K-A-R-L-I-N, zero, the number zero. Anatoly, thank you very much for coming on. Obviously, this is a conflict with many different facets between Russia and Ukraine. But since this is an American podcast, I think I should start by asking you your assessment of how the Biden administration has reacted to the attack on Ukraine. Are you surprised that they have not been more hawkish, perhaps more aggressive in response? Or do you think they've acted as you would have expected the Biden administration to react? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, they acted more or less uh, as I expected, because uh, even before the last US elections, uh, one theory I put forwards was that, in fact, a democratic administration uh, would be uh, less hawkish than widely expected towards Russia. Uh, simply because uh, back when Trump was in the diving seat, there was uh, Russiagate going on for all four years of his presidency until it was sort of quietly buried uh, in the like last month before the election. Pressure for him to act as someone who was portrayed in the US media as a uh, puppet of Putin have been extreme, and I do not uh, exclude the possibility that somebody as Mercurial by character as uh, Trump could, could have actually and ironically gone ahead with the NFZ, which uh, Biden has more or less categorically ruled out. Uh, Whereas Biden uh, uh, is uh, uh, sort of actually has a freer deal, in my opinion, to set policy to hew to the the policy of uh, what I I really consider to be the sort of like the bipartisan consensus at at this point in the US, which is that in the long term, China is the much uh, bigger threat to uh, US hegemony because it's got a comparable GDP and uh, comparable human capital and four times the population, just basic demographic economic factors. So basically, I'm, uh, I, this is fully in line with what, with, with what I was expecting. One of the reasons I wanted to ask you on to Americano was, is because in your very interesting essay called The Regathering of Russian Lands, which was published two weeks, how many days before the, the invasion? A, a, a week ago. A week, uh, a so week before, was February yeah. 16th, it uh, began on February 24th, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I made the initial prediction that it would happen on the 22nd of February back in mid to January. Yes. They seemed pretty clear by that point. Well, so you, you lay out a number of reasons why you thought it was going to happen and why a lot of people who say that they know a lot about Russia were wrong. And one of the reasons you suggest is that the relationship, as you just suggested there, is that the relationship between China and America is changing and that perhaps Putin feels his window of opportunity for doing something about the Ukraine, which is something he's wanted to mm. do for a long time, closing because of that. Can you explain what you, what you meant? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, my sort of uh, <clears throat> model of geopolitics is that there's uh, different trend uh, dynamics going on at any particular moment in time. So, for instance, uh, why did Putin not do the same 2014, for instance, uh, which is when the Euromaidan happened? Well, I mean, there was there was some speculation that it would happen, but in the end it didn't. And why didn't it? Uh, well, probably because uh, the uh, West started out the... Uh, a prospect of a sort of like Iran tier sanctions, which is what uh, we are seeing now at a time when the Russian economy was much less prepared for it. And also critically, when China's percentage of world GDP was considerably lower than it is today, when uh, China was uh, substantially less technologically converged, the leading edge in terms of semiconductors and high tech and so on. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, uh, when the uh, so-called chimerica relationship between China and uh, the United States, which underpins the world economy, this was like basically its apex in the mid-2010s. Whereas uh, under the late Trump, you uh, sort of uh, began seeing the gradual breakdown of this model with, uh, uh, with uh, the uh, prosecution of Huawei. And uh, now, now it's accelerating. Uh, Covid crisis contributed to that. Now it's accelerating with Chinese stocks being delisted. So um, uh, now that the, uh, the world is uh, bifurcating in this, in this, uh, in this respect, into what seems to be going, what seems to be like a Western sphere going forward into the future, and a Sinosphere. It seems that Russia would be able to exist much more comfortably in such a world than would have been the case uh, a uh, like seven years ago when the world was still pretty like uh, integrated. And uh, why, 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 why now? Well, I mean, uh, it also has to be balanced against the other trend, which is that the Ukrainian military was modernizing quite rapidly. Uh, so uh, basically, it would have been becoming uh, progressively harder and harder for, uh, for Russia to mount this kind of operation. Also, Ukrainian national identity was being consolidated. So, um, I mean, the uh, Russian language was phased out of Ukrainian schools uh, a couple of years ago. So, pro-Russian uh, TV stations have been closed down and uh, so forth. So, if, if that sort of thing goes on for another decade, that uh, simply the uh, prospect of uh, like the integration would become more and more fantastical, essentially. Do you think then, from the Kremlin's perspective, it's possible to say that it was too late in doing what it's done? Because this, the westernization process of Ukraine, a lot of people say, is far more advanced than perhaps Putin and those around him accepted. I think that's uh, it's that's pretty clearly what has been the case. Because, I mean, if you look at uh, what was happening in the first couple of days of the uh, uh, military operation, uh, you have essentially people uh, like these paratroopers going deep into the Ukrainian uh, rear, almost as if have an expectation that uh, the Ukrainian army would uh, would fall very quickly. You didn't see the use of heavy artillery, which is a major advantage of the Russian armed forces. So I mean, Russian forces are much more artillery, firepower heavier than the, the American uh, equivalents. Not a lot, great deal of that uh, uh, firepower was being utilized in the first couple of days. Uh, so um, clearly, I do think that there was an expectation that um, it might be something closer to what happened in Crimea in 2014, which is uh, when basically the Ukrainian army gave up without a fight and uh, basically Russia walked into Crimea. I mean, it certainly isn't a, a cakewalk. Do you then go along with most analysis, most analysts 
who say that Putin has made a very, very grave miscalculation. I think I think it's only going to become clear in another decade or so, relative costs and benefits. I mean, leaving like like ethical considerations and uh, that kind of thing aside. You say essentially, if uh, what we're, what we're going to see, I, I think, is that much of uh, Eastern Ukraine at any rate will be will be uh, like uh, conquered. I I, th- I think that's pretty clear because the disparity between the uh, the two military forces is uh, exactly simply too extreme for it to be otherwise. So Russia has uh, air dominance. It's got uh, own targeted uh, artillery. So, uh, I mean, manpads and then laws, which javelins, which people go on about, uh, all, all that they can really do is uh, have supply lines, uh, but that's not the kind of thing that, uh, that is going to win a war. Uh, so, I, I think that this is, this is pretty much baked in. I don't think uh, the uh, negotiations will succeed in the uh, near future at any date. Uh, I mean, I've always on my Twitter said that negotiations are most likely a charade on both sides, because if, if Russia was to uh, like agree to withdrawal, it would be seen as a loss, and Putin would face the very real possibility of a color revolution in that case, in my opinion, by 2024 in the next election, if not this year. And uh, nor is Zelensky in a position to accept it, again, because uh, the majority of Ukrainians, according to opinion polls, believe that they are winning. And uh, there's also a very strong nationalist uh, influence of nationalist paramilitaries in Ukraine. So uh, even on the off chance that he sort of commands his uh, negotiators to uh, agree on some kind of compromise, like recognizing the DNR, the Lenar and Crimea as part of Russia, uh, they're not going to be happy about that and they will accuse him of treason and a good chance he simply gets assassinated. But even even if if that deal is accepted by the data which is sort of like, like pretty, uh, pretty unlikely to happen. Uh, so uh, I, I basically think that the military operation will take, obviously will take much longer than initially expected, uh, as in another month at least, uh, as opposed to like the uh, uh, one to two or three weeks that, uh, that many people were expecting uh, at the start. And, uh, then the other que- uh, the uh, question after that is to what extent will uh, the building be successful and uh, to what extent uh, the uh, uh, sanctions will continue and uh, will there be a serious insurgency and I mean the answers to these uh, like various questions will I suppose determine in a decade or so whether uh, whether it's been a successful or a miscalculation. A lot of Western commentators talk a lot about how Putin can be given an off-ramp, is the phrase they use a lot. Is there an off-ramp? Well, as I said, I'm very sceptical about off-ramps because uh, Ukraine also does have a a certain agency of its own. Well, first of all, I mean, Russia has a major sunk cost problem, right? Uh, so it's already involved a sort of a massive sort of amount of troops and uh, uh, half of it's uh, the central bank's foreign reserves have been frozen. The uh, economy is uh, frankly going down the gutter because the sanctions were a, a lot more extreme than it seems that uh, many people were expecting. And uh, for their part, as I said, uh, the, uh, even, if, uh, even if the West was in a position to, to make an off-ramp, which I'm very skeptical about because I mean, sanctions are much easier in general to uh, introduce than to the move. 
few, uh, like just another example, Jackson Vanek, which was connected to uh, Jewish immigration from the Soviet Union, became totally irrelevant, obviously, uh, by the time the Soviet Union ended, but it was only fully removed in 2012. Uh, so uh, first thing, uh, the uh, West is a like is like 30 different countries and uh, uh, coordinating sanctions sort of like removal as part of an off-ramp uh, would be difficult, very difficult to coordinate. And secondly, you would also have to somehow coordinate it uh, with Ukraine as well, where, I mean, the, there's extremely, like, no, no interest in, in any such thing. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, they uh, think that they're winning, according to opinion polls, and uh, uh, any, any questioning of Ukrainian territorial integrity, which actually inclu includes Crimea, is uh, is is a no go for them, and obviously a no go for Russia. Uh, so I don't really see how those uh, uh, how those uh, uh, circles can be squared, essentially. And if you want, if you're in the mood for blaming anyone, would you blame America for cultivating a sense of nation in Ukraine that is that that means it can't square with what Russia wants to, what's Russia's intentions for for the region? Well, I mean, I think it was uh, ultimately uh, both sides were at fault to some extent. If you, if you look at it uh, for um, over the past 30 years, I mean, people have already growing realization that uh, NATO expansion uh, was a uh, major, major figure, which was in violation of verbal commitments made, made to Russia, to, to even under Gorbachev. And uh, Russia was actually, according to opinion polls in the 1990s, it was one of the most Americanophile countries in the world, although that sort of uh, sentiment progressively broke down uh, after the bombing of Serbia in 1999 and the Iraq war and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Georgia, I mean, and so on. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't really think that assigning blame is uh, is very productive. All that, all that I will say is that uh, probably if the uh, US had been more accommodating, that would, uh, and, uh, I mean, and the EU as well, uh, because back in 2014, according to opinion polls in 2014, that's the eve of the uh, Euromaidan color revolution in, in Ukraine. According to those opinion polls, opinion on whether to go with the, to, to like pursue EU integration or uh, Eurasian integration, which is like the uh, uh, Russian sort of uh, customs union, uh, it was split 50-50. And it was the EU, not the Eurasian Union, which made it an either or, or either or kind of issue. So, uh, so and therefore, sort of forced the issue. So, if uh, if the Western approach had been less maximalist, I do not think that uh, Russia would have been as aggrieved and aggressive as it has progressively become. And ultimately, it uh, yeah probably probably. Probably they should have one benefit from uh, from the uh, sort of radical breakdown of relations with the West that uh, we're already seeing, but uh, I don't think it will be very good for uh, for the West either because obviously the main competition is uh, going to be with China and uh, it's uh, now pretty obvious that um, uh, Russia is simply going to be very uh, squarely in, in China's camp. Yes, you mentioned the verbal agreement, the verbal uh, commitments on NATO that the West made. It seems to me this is quite an important debate point as to what those verbal commitments were and how significant they were, and that Russia understood them in a completely different way to which the West understood them. Would you would you agree with that? 
Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, I think it's pretty obvious uh, that uh, that you could interpret it that way. Um, furthermore, more note that uh, uh, from the 1990s, NATO expansion was extrinsically intrinsically linked to EU expansion. So uh, after the uh, like the fall of the Soviet Union, getting into the EU, but but declining to join NATO, for instance, and uh, what wasn't uh, sort of the um, uh, it was sort of linked at the hip. Uh, you can have one without the other. Uh, so I think it's it's uh, not that surprising that Russia viewed with consternation the advance of a, of a, of a, a sort of a questionable military alliance that uh, that furthermore was involved in military operations against its uh, sort of like close cultural ally Serbia in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, so. Um, and uh, people also often uh, thought out the, the uh, one uh, sort of uh, excuse for this is that, uh, well, uh, it was the choice of those uh, countries to join NATO or not, uh, which doesn't really seem all that logical to me, quite frankly, because, uh, uh, I mean, you, you also have sort of a choice whether to accept somebody into your club or not. And uh, so yeah, I mean, throwing uh, Russia, throwing those uh, those countries into into NATO, while pretty much square, pretty squarely uh, telling Russia that no, it's not going to join NATO and it's, no, it's not going to join the EU. As uh, I mean, Putin was actually more American, more West Occidentophile than uh, than Yeltsin back in the early two thousands. Uh, he was the first uh, world leader to send commiserations to the US on nine eleven. Uh, so, and uh, he did, uh, like very early in those days, uh, he expressed some interest about uh, about joining NATO and the EU, which is obviously very hard to imagine now. And uh, those uh, sort of concerns were pretty much dismissed. So, like the EU person he talked with, uh, with him said, no, you can forget about it, uh, your, your, your country is too big, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, it's uh, and uh, everything since then has, uh, has sort of... Um, um, uh, gone along a uh, not entirely unpredictable trajectory. I mean, d- something uh, you talk about, which is his Putin's nationalist turn, and the way in which he's gone from being uh, quite quite an occidentalist to a, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, three or four years perhaps, position has hardened, and this is perhaps something that a lot of people outside of Russia who were perhaps more sympathetic than a lot of people towards Russia and towards the Kremlin have missed that Putin has taken this nationalist turn and it's a much harder turn um, than people anticipated. Is, is that is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, a hard turn in what sense? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if people are interested, I do have an article on this, which, which I think is quite comprehensive. Uh, it's called Russia's Nationalist Turn. Uh, it's uh, the Wounds uh, the View. Yeah, you, you can Google it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my sort of thesis is that uh, whereas uh, in the two thousands uh, uh, the Kremlin done as a kind of unideological uh, technocracy, uh, in the twenty uh, tens uh, there was an increasing sort of like conservative identification. So with the like uh, like the probably most famous for the the stuff on the uh, gay propaganda law. And uh, yeah, about about uh, two to three uh, years ago, uh, you had the um, uh, the um, an increasing uh, not I wouldn't say ethno nationalism, but I would say uh, some some kind of ethno aware awareness uh, seeping in, 
So in the sense that, uh, like to just cite the example, a, a few examples, the um, constitution was written to implicitly uh, uh, define ethnic uh, Russians as the uh, state, the state-forming people of the Russian Federation. Which sounds extreme, but it's actually an, entirely an, analogous to what uh, the majority of uh, newly of of, uh, of East European countries have in their constitution, like Hungary and, uh, and Poland and so on. You had uh, uh, increasing uh, uh, like emphasis on knowing the Russian language uh, in terms of immigration policy. Uh, so that's particularly relevant, considering the uh, uh, sort of like the stand of immigration flows from Central Asia and the Caucasus. Another interesting thing is you had the uh, uh, cessation of political persecutions for hate speech uh, under the so-called Article 282, which was uh, very widely used to uh, break uh, political nationalism in the 2010s. Uh, well, I mean, that was pretty much the worst, uh, but uh, nationalists did not sort of uh, go back into the opposition as they had been before this, simply because, well, I mean, as I, as I said, Russia has itself become significantly more nationalistic. Uh, so uh, the um, nationalism as, a, as an independent political force, I'd say, has pretty much created because simply uh, it's it's like where you have like a um, like a planetary system and the black hole wanders into it. You like a vast majority of it of, of it just falls into it and the rest flies off to the fringes. And that's basically what happened to uh, uh, organized nationalist political forces uh, in the. Uh, Past five over the past five years, essentially. And so, so if I understand you, Putin has just really sort of surfed this this enormous wave that would have happened without him. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there was uh, the, there were like uh, like uh, discontent uh, along those lines, especially related uh, related to immigration, for instance, and uh, it was a pretty pretty. Um, well, significant force because, uh, well, I, I mean, it's really just a uh, general East European phenomenon to some extent. I mean, obviously in Ukraine, it's, it's played a big role. And then Poland, uh, fame infamously, uh, Hungary and Orban, uh, who is uh, very much fated by uh, uh, sort of the populist side in the West. In my opinion, Russia had many of the same trends, although in like, somewhat different forms obviously but but essentially the same and uh, uh yes I, I do firmly believe that uh, putin saw the writing on the wall or the people around him and uh, and uh, decided to uh, sort of harness it uh, for, for for his own purposes although i do think that his uh, his sort of like uh, outlook is uh, genuinely substantially nationalist because i mean he was uh, if you look at the sort of people he cites uh, i mean people go on about putin as the new stalin or whatever which is total, totally nonsense i mean if you listen to his speeches he's very critical of of, uh, of stalin and the soviet union like uh, the bolsheviks especially the early bolsheviks uh, if you actually look at the sort of people he cites it's people like ivan Ilyin. Dive and uh, like uh, basically white uh, white emigre philosophers and uh, Anton Dinikin and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, so uh, basically, the whole category system in which many people think about Putin that his intent on uh, restoring the Soviet Union and so forth. Well, no, I mean uh, that's total nonsense. He what what he. To the, to the extent that he espouses an ideology, it's clearly neo-Tsarist and uh, devolves around the uh, three on the nation as uh, uh, Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians uh, as uh, be, being uh, being one 
big meta nation, the old Russian nation, in in the old terminology, uh, that should uh, ideally uh, live together within the same borders. So it has a, a an element of blood and soil, but it, also his his vision is very tied to religion, and there's been a lot of writing about his relationship with Patriarch Kirill. Is that something that Putin has become more zealous about, perhaps? I wouldn't say that he that he's become notably more zealous about it. I mean, there's. Uh... I mean, Dashi is uh, is a mostly secular country. So, I mean, for instance, I, I I'm actually a patriot. I uh, yeah, I spent two thirds of my life in the West in Britain. So, uh, and in the school I went to, mm. uh, the uh, like in primary school every day began began with a prayer, and uh, there's nothing like that in Russia. Uh, even even uh, like uh, so far as religious studies are concerned, uh, you have the option of uh, doing some secular civic studies or whatever. But that might so be a, that might be a legacy. Of, uh, of, uh, yeah, that might be a but, legacy uh, of communism. On the other hand, yeah, yeah, but on the on the other hand, there clearly is a a push to uh, raise the prestige uh, of of orthodoxy in society. That's uh, in the in the uh, uh, past two decades. I, but this is not a recent development. However, uh, it's been something that's been ongoing since literally the two thousands. So, like uh, church construction, for instance, is is pretty massive. And uh, there's a if if you drive down to the Russian sort of like uh, small towns outside Moscow, there's a vast sort of projects of uh, uh, historical restoration going on, like old fortresses and old monasteries and so on, which is uh, yeah yeah I mean I mean it's obviously to do with uh, the uh, promotion of, of of orthodoxy as as a as a part of the Russian identity, but it's also a positive development because uh, it's uh, nicer to dive past these uh, restored uh, places than uh, having them be just like ruins, which were last used as some uh, warehouse under the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's sort of like a typical uh, typical picture. Yes. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about resistance within Russia, protests in Russia. We had the protest on television last, the protester on television last night. Is it your impression that mm-hmm. these people are in a significant minority? I mean, I think uh, it's pretty. Uh, this was my impression from the beginning, uh, uh, and I tweeted about it. And uh, since then, all the opinion polls basically I've seen have confirmed that. I mean, frankly, when Western journalists go to Russia, there's an extreme self-selection bias because who are the people who they are going to meet and who are going to talk with a Western journalist in the center of Moscow? Uh, they're probably younger people. They're probably people who know foreign languages. It's, it's a pretty, pretty um, biased sample. Uh, and uh, all the opinion polls do suggest that uh, uh, support for the war or the uh, special military operation, as it's called, uh, is something like 60 to 70 percent, which frankly isn't that surprising because 70 percent, if I recall, was pretty much the exact percentage that uh, of Americans who supported the Iraq war in the, when it was going on. Mm. But, it, I mean, I suppose the interesting comparison would be that Americans were quite willing to support Iraq while it was a cakewalk, or seemed to be a cakewalk, mm-hmm. but once it became a quagmire mm-hmm. and a disaster, Americans turned very much against it. And and even Russians now who support mm-hmm. Putin's invasion of Ukraine would now would start to, to, to turn on him quite quickly if mm-hmm. he was seen as weak and he was seen as failing. 
Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is uh, the, in my opinion, the core principle of politics. People like winners and uh, they hate losers. Ethics modality is very much secondary to uh, to that uh, basic equation. The uh, uh, main question is, uh, I, I mean, as I said, in, in, from what I know of military analysis, it, it doesn't seem to me that uh, Ukraine has a military, has a realistic chance of, uh, of eking out a win. But uh, if, if I'm incorrect on that, then yes, obviously, if uh, Russia does lose, if, or if it gets bogged down into a multi-month quagmire, as in like more than three months, then yes, I do expect uh, uh, support to start uh, declining, especially if it's sort of uh, accompanied by, uh, by the sort of like economic reverberations, uh, which is another big question, uh, like to what extent uh, the uh, sanctions are, are going to affect the uh, Russian economy and to what extent the West is uh, going to uh, be able to support those sanctions because it's pretty it's pretty painful for for the West as well. I mean, Russia controls ten percent of the world's uh, like uh, primary resource exports in, in many categories. Uh, so uh, uh, something like twenty five percent of world wheat exports. Uh, so obviously, it's not entirely a one way street. But yeah, that that aside, I do agree that if uh, if there's a uh, a uh, long period of irresolution and quagmire, uh, then then yes, uh, Putin's support can may may will most likely start declining, and if it's a clear loss, then yes, I don't exclude a a a, a color revolution pretty much, but I think the chances of that are, are pretty pretty small. Would you say free speech in Russia has declined in the last five years? Uh, well, I mean it depends on who you are, right? If you are if you're a nationalist who wants to sort of like speak about IQ and stuff, then no, it, it hasn't. I mean, it, arguably, it's higher than in the West. Sorry, when you say speak about IQ, you mean if you're a nationalist who wants to talk about sort of racial differences in IQ? Yeah, that's the sort of stuff. And yeah, I mean, I fully allow that, and it might actually well might well be more liberal now than uh, after the decriminalization of Article 282, which I mentioned earlier on this podcast than many uh, European countries, uh, possibly to some extent in the US, because I mean, well, we know that there's formerly free speech in the US, but uh, nothing stopping Uber and uh, uh, like Airbnb and so on from uh, uh, from kicking you out. But yeah, but yeah, if, if, if you are speaking, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, uh, all countries have their own taboos, okay? So uh, if you in in Russia, yeah, you probably don't want to uh, question the victory in World War Two, for instance. Does that sort of like a taboo? The West has its own taboos. If you want to do research on a great leap forwards famine, uh, then China probably isn't the ideal place to do that from. Uh, at least, uh, at least when it comes to publishing it. If 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 you if you want to be in the sort of like the pro Western opposition and to work for Navalny, then then yes, I mean his organization uh, has been pretty much wound down. Basically, um, if if it's correct that uh, the Putin decided to do this war in the middle of last year, uh, at the latest, which uh, seems seems to me the, the timelines line up. Then, uh, yeah, basically, uh, well, I mean, he knows his history. He knows that uh, the Tsarist regime essentially uh, lost because they uh, uh, they were not heavy-handed enough. Like the provisional government had basically like this network of Soviets, like in the country, working to undermine the war effort, and uh, uh, he. Uh, it seems I correctly assume that something like this would would happen if uh, if Navalny structures continued to operate and uh, pre- preemptively moved to uh, to shut them down. 
I think that's that's uh, sort of like how to explain that. That's an interesting way of explaining it. Do you, do you feel? I mean, for instance, you you've said on this podcast you think Putin may have made a strategic mistake, and you've suggested that if the war doesn't pan out as uh, well for him, he will fail. Do you feel concerned about saying something like that? Oh no, you you wouldn't see any ramifications. Uh, that's highly unlikely. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, offering analysis. Yes. So uh, this, uh, this, uh, this is the reason, the kind of, uh, the, the thing that gets, uh, that gets people into trouble. Yes. Uh, it's uh, not the uh, uh, totalitarian uh, regime that uh, that uh, people like to portray. Many Westerners imagine itself to be. I mean, yes. If I was doing this, uh, this as part of like, uh, like political agitation, uh, aligned, aligned with like. Like Navani's organizations, mm. then, then yeah, that, that might be might be this key. But uh, since since I'm not, uh, nobody would care, frankly. Yeah. And can you tell us you're in Moscow at the moment? Do you feel that you're being plunged into the economic darkness? Well, not yet uh, at any date. I mean, obviously, my uh, the stocks have been uh, frozen, uh, so uh, basically become a backholder. Don't know for how long. Uh, so apart from that, no. I mean, Russia has uh, is is a country of 150 million people with pretty high human capital, and it's uh, got most of the uh, uh, infrastructure that uh, that the West that that like if if you take a look at Western big tech, for instance. So for for Google, we have Yandex. For Twitter, we have Telegram and WhatsApp. For Facebook, we have VK. Uh, so all of that is taken care of. Uh, I mean, you can access the, with them to VPNs anyway, which a lot of uh, people who have a foot in the Western ecosystem are doing anyway. Uh, but other, otherwise, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not a problem because we, because Russia has its own equivalents. In terms of financial infrastructure, <coughs> uh, so yes, my. Uh, uh, Mastercard and Google Pay got blocked uh, several days ago, but it's not an issue because, uh, well, it takes five minutes to download the uh, domestic equivalent, which is called Mir Pay. Uh, so I'm just using a, uh, the the Mir system uh, to to pay for th- for stuff instead. Uh, I can also so uh, yeah, I mean a lot of online services for which Dutch does not have like direct equivalent, such as Steam, for instance, like the video game store, has been blocked to Russians. So uh, only fans transactions I've heard have been stopped. Although I, this brings us to another inter- uh, interesting and ironic point, which is that the uh, sort of Russians who are, have been, I would say, most affected by this, to the extent that Russians have been affected, are precisely those who have the greatest economic links with the West. So uh, you can no longer book a direct flight to the EU- European Union, for instance. Uh, in, in Great Britain, um, uh, deposits uh, from Russian citizens have been capped at 50,000 British pounds. And uh, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of uh, online services such as Twitch or OnlyFans uh, have demonetized their creators. And uh, the irony is that the sorts of Russians who are using uh, these uh, services or who are studying abroad in Europe and uh, who've had their payment systems cut off experienced major inconveniences, uh, logistical inconveniences on account of uh, these uh, sort of uh, very, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, emotional, emotionally driven and knee-jerk sanctions. Uh, they have precisely the Russians, uh, who are the most accidentophile Russians. If you have a look at elections, the results of historical elections in Russia, 
then you will see that uh, probably the single most anti-Putin constituency uh, of Russians in the world anywhere is frankly the uh, Londongrad, the Russian community in London and another big uh, Western European and American cities. So yeah, I mean, uh, uniquely, uniquely badly targeted, uh, I would say, and uh, it's ironic in that respect. It's interesting that Putin and and um, some of his cabinet are seem to have a particular irritation or hostility towards London at the moment, and I detect a certain contempt in your voice when you talk about Russians in London, Westernized Russians in in London. Is is London seen? We're recording this from London. Is London seen as a sort of a, a particularly malign force on the world stage in Russia? Uh, well, I mean, it's obviously figures uh, very, uh, very prominently in the Russian imagination because it seems to be the sort of uh, the favorite asylum for both uh, for, for all kinds of oligarchs, for instance. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, on another note, the, there seems to be an impression that uh, you could somehow orchestrate a coup or something in Russia by uh, by sort of like freezing the assets of Russian oligarchs, which makes zero sense because I mean, Russia is not an oligarchy. I mean, yes, I mean, I'm not denying that the people at the top are several orders of magnitude to way beyond the means of their formal salaries. Uh, but this does not make them oligarchs. The oligarchs as a political force uh, have been uh, uh, completely kneecapped since the early 2000s when uh, Putin cut Khodorkovsky down to size. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the turning to the uh, uh, question about about London. Uh, yeah, but, uh, probably. I mean, uh, I, I can imagine that the, uh, that the Russian ruling elites have, uh, have uh, more of a... Uh, uh, hostility uh, to, uh, to Britain uh, relative to other countries. And I mean, it's sort of a mutual feeling uh, for understandable reasons. I mean, uh, uh, given given uh, sort of like Russia's intelligence operations in, in Britain. So I'm not like blaming anyone in particular for that. As, as I said, a lot of the Dutch Russians do uh, uh, sort of like view, view London as a sort of uh, the uh, very, very prestigious uh, destination for for. Uh, like keeping their wealth, and there's even even among some nationalists, I don't consider myself part of, of that faction, but uh, uh, there's uh, one uh, particular theory that uh, Russia is done from London, that it's a British crypto colony, uh, according to the theories of one person called Dmitry Galkovsky, uh, that it's uh, built from London. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the, the sort of like Russian Ladouche equivalent or something like that. I am not uh, not too familiar with it, but uh, don't, I don't identify with, with those theories, but, but they do exist for, for what it's worth. Well, Anatoly, thank you very much for coming on Americano. It's been very interesting to hear your perspective. Okay, uh, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 